evidence and answers. Who is the Muslim Brotherhood? Are they a peaceful organization or are they a threat to freedom? Can we have a peaceful democracy in the Middle East nations? What does the near future hold for the nation of Israel? Well, you're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we're going to listen to Pat's guest, Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, as he presents part two of his message entitled, The Current Middle East Crisis. This message was recently presented at the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Let's join Kirby Anderson now as he presents part two of his message entitled, The Current Middle East Crisis. I think it's important to understand a little bit more about the Muslim Brotherhood because they really, I believe, are the force behind what is taking place, not only in Egypt, but other countries in the Middle East. Let's talk about that. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood was established back in 1928 when the Egyptians at that time, one of the Egyptian leaders in particular, who was sort of the intellectual grandfather for a number of the terrorist leaders, actually were angered at the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. You know, up until World War I, you had the Ottoman Empire. The Turks pretty much controlled that area, and you had what was kind of known as a caliphate or a a structural Islamic rule, and that existed until those countries were redrawn, and the defeat of the Turks uh, and the redrawing of the lines of these countries began to upset some of those radicals. By the way, to this day, some of the country's lines were drawn by a man who at that time was the foreign minister in Great Britain, a man by the name of Winston Churchill, who later went on to be the prime minister. And so as a result, their idea was to resurrect this idea of a Muslim caliphate and actually implement a Muslim unity within these various countries, one that would be much more radical. The slogan of the Muslim Brotherhood is Al-Islam Hua Alar, which means Islam is the solution. And it is something that is easily identified by their symbol. Now, if you've seen any of the Muslim Brotherhood and their symbols, you will probably most likely see many of them wearing green. You will see they actually have this particular symbol that has these two cross swords. Uh, Up above is a picture of the Quran, and below it in Arabic is the word prepare. Now, you might say, well, what does that mean? I mean, after all... Boy Scouts say, be prepared. What's wrong with prepare? And well, this is really something that's a little more significant because it's based upon uh, Surah 8 in the Quran. Prepare against them as you are able of force and calvary to terrorize Allah's enemies and yours. So that's what the word prepare means, and it helps you understand a little bit more about the intent of the Muslim Brotherhood. Matter of fact, the motto is uh, something that you can find out. You don't have to believe me. You can go do a Google search right now because, after all, Google knows all. And you can do a Google search and you can type in the Muslim Brotherhood motto. And the motto is well known. It is Allah is our objective. The prophet is our leader. Quran is our law. Jihad is our way. Dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. The original founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, was the founder and certainly had a desire to implement what we would consider to be a much more radical and literal interpretation of the Quran, and thus justifying those kinds of actions. But at the same time, we have individuals in the administration that have said they don't seem radical. 
they don't seem like Al-Qaeda, they don't seem like Hezbollah, they don't seem like Hamas. So maybe they're different kind of Muslims. And this is where you have to know a little bit about Arabic. Well, I don't. But as a talk show host, I have individuals that actually, and one individual in particular whose wife is Egyptian, he's Jewish, don't ask, interesting family, but that's okay. But he actually has his wife who can read Arabic and is uh, monitoring Egyptian broadcasts, monitoring the things that the Muslim Brotherhood have been saying. And what I'm giving you right now are just a few of the quotes. I have shortened this again in the interest of time, but you can read more of it later on if you would like as you go to Pat Zucharin's website, Evidence and Answers. But one of their particular writings says, it's up to the Muslim leadership to assess the situation. They go on to say, before deciding the appropriate type of jihad. Now, when we use the word jihad today, we've in a sense been enculturated to believe jihad always means a person that wants to go out and slit your throat. Well, there are different meanings for jihad. Matter of fact, if you have an English translation of the Quran, and I have a number of different ones, oftentimes that word jihad is translated to strive or to struggle. And so some suggest that that striving or struggle is involving armed combat, but the, also the idea of jihad is persuasion or influence. And so they went on in this particular article to say that Muslims may find that jihad through persuasion or peaceful resistance is the best and most effective method. And so what I'm noticing right now is the Muslim Brotherhood are actually saying maybe the most significant and most effective way for us to take power is to use what we would call persuasive jihad. And so the Muslim Brotherhood seem to be using that in Egypt and in Tunisia. Recognize that right now you've had elections. There are three separate elections. We've had two of the three. The third just about ready to be completed. And the Muslim Brotherhood have been able to win enough seats in the parliament. And so they're suggesting that maybe it's much more effective. A more effective jihad would be a persuasive political jihad and actually take over control of the country versus, say, a violent jihad that you would get, say, from Hamas or Al-Qaeda. Does that make sense? And so I can see why you would have some people in the administration saying, well, the Muslim Brotherhood seem different than Al-Qaeda. They seem different than a Zarqawi or Osama bin Laden or whatever. And that's true. But the goal in the end is still the same. Does that make sense? Also, this is going to be a very important foreign policy issue. We do send a fair amount of foreign aid around the world. The country that receives the most amount of foreign aid, Israel. The country that receives the second amount of foreign aid is what? Egypt. Now, with the absence of Mubarak, will we continue to do so? Well, the top leader in Muslim Brotherhood just this last week said that any cuts in U.S. aid to Egypt could affect the country's peace treaty with Israel. Now we're back to that peace treaty, aren't we? So they're using the peace treaty as a weapon to continue to get foreign aid. But think about this for a minute. Many Egyptians really don't want the foreign aid. They have seen foreign aid as being a corruptive influence in their own government. They saw foreign aid helping Mubarak and the military. And so a large majority in the latest poll I've just found, 71% of Egyptians actually opposed U.S. aid. But look at it in this country. You know, as a talk show host, I can tell you, whenever I open up the phones and say, where would you cut the government? 
one of the first things people say is what? Foreign aid. Well, if we've been sending foreign aid to Egypt and we don't have enough money right now, I mean, this last year we had a federal deficit of $1.6 trillion. Does it make any sense to borrow money from China, Saudi Arabia, Japan, England, then then turn right around and give it to Egypt? That's not exactly a winner politically, is it? And I suspect there's a real question as to whether or not that will continue. Okay, if the Muslim Brotherhood leader is correct and we decide not to send money to Egypt anymore, and there may be good reasons for and against it, what happens to that peace treaty? And that's something that, again, just illustrates the possibility of a coming war in the Middle East. Let me, before I go on to some other points, I wanted to give you some possible prayer targets to be praying about. And the first is, is certainly we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You might put down Psalm 122, verse 6. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We recognize that the only peace will come is when the, the King of Kings will bring peace on this earth. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for peace. And we certainly should pray for the nation of Israel. We should also pray for those in authority, whether you agree or disagree with the past president, the current president, or whatever might be a future president. We are admonished by Paul, as he writes to Timothy, to pray for those in authority, for kings and rulers and others. And I'll have more to say about that tomorrow when we talk about this upcoming election and what's at stake. You know, we talked about Egypt for just a minute. I think we should pray for the two and a half million persecuted Christians in Egypt right now. They've been harassed. They've been intimidated. Uh, There have been bombings of churches. The Coptic church has suffered a great deal. And this has not been a good time at all for Christians in any of these countries, whether you look at Iraq, whether you look at Afghanistan, whether you look at Egypt or certainly others. I have some examples there, of course, and probably the one that uh, got many people's attention a year ago, the bombing of Saint's Church in Alexandria on New Year's Eve. It's just a reminder that you might sometimes in the midst of all this be very frustrated and say, what can I do? Well, there is certainly one thing you can and should do, and that is to pray for the persecuted church. But let's just for a few minutes talk about some of the other enemies of Israel. And certainly there are a couple that come to mind. The first would be Hamas. Hamas has been one of those particular factions which now has sort of a piece of land that's like a country, and that's the Gaza Strip. And really, while a lot of of our attention was on the conflict in Libya, Hamas was firing more than 100 different mortar shells from the Gaza Strip into Israel. This was perhaps one of the heaviest barrages in more than two years. And Israel finally responded. And then, of course, as we've seen happen before, Israel is condemned in the world uh, court of public opinion. But we don't have to go very far to talk about enemies of Israel. A piece of land that itself at one point was part of Israel is now a piece that is essentially controlled by Hamas. We can talk about some others, and that is the big tension right now in terms of the so-called Palestinians. You might remember when the United Nations originally established this, there was, if you could, have called it a two-nation solution, but instead the uh, Palestinians groups or the groups called Palestinians left to Jordan thinking that actually Israel would be destroyed, but was not. And now you have constant pressure to be 
put on Israel to come up with a so-called two-state solution this fall. For example, there was supposed to be a vote in the United Nations to establish a two-state solution. This, as you can see by looking at this, would be something that would establish Israel as having the borders that it had prior to the 1967 war. The narrowest point in that border is about the same distance from here maybe to downtown, maybe a little further. I mean, you're talking about just a very, very small strip of land from here to Diamond Head. I mean, and that's, you're supposed to be able to be able to control your borders and protect the nation. Obviously, Israel is not going to go for that, but there is no evidence that the Palestinian Authority is going to give up. So we see again the constant tension that exists there. But in the time I have remaining, I thought we might look back in history to maybe understand a little bit of the ancient conflict. Because in a sense, the conflict that we see today is a conflict that uh, is like a family feud. Some of you might remember the TV show, The Family Feud. Well, this is a little bit different kind of family feud. This is a family feud in which you can see, first of all, there was a separation between mothers. You remember the story between Sarah and Hagar, and then ultimately the Hagarines developed from that, many of the Egyptians. Uh, The sons, Isaac and Ishmael, you have now the Ishmaelites. In some respects, the war, if you will, between the Jews and the Arabs, or the Jews and the Ishmaelites, go all the way back to that particular time. The one I thought I'd focus on, although I'm going to pick a few of the others, you can look at the brothers Jacob and Esau, and we're going to follow the story of Esau and those various enemies of Israel in the past and all the way up to the present, which lead to some of the others, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But let's talk about Jacob and Esau for just a minute. You probably know the story. In Genesis 25, Rebecca gives birth to twins. One comes out red and hairy and is a man's man and is a hunter and loves game, and that's Esau. But the other is taking hold of his heel as they come out, and that is Jacob sort of a mild man, very different than Esau. Of course, you know the story, selling his birthright, tricking his father, and much more. But ultimately, we see that as we follow their history, they really take two very different paths. The first is that God told Jacob that he was to dwell in the land wherein his father was stranger in the land of Canaan. Of course, this is the promised land. But God told Esau that he was to leave this land of promise. He was going to a place called Mount Seir. And I thought for just a minute, I wanted to follow the descendants of Esau and show you how, in some respects, the conflict that we have today really goes all the way back to Genesis and follows it all the way through the Old Testament. Because we can see, obviously, that Jacob would have 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. These tribes become the nation of Israel and part of really the modern-day state of Israel as well. But Esau's descendants become a nation, and they're located today in the present-day location of what we would call Jordan, and it includes many of those Arab groups, including the ones that are today referred to as the Palestinians. So let's talk about that for a minute. It seems, as you look through biblical history, that time and time again, Esau's descendants seem to be fighting against the Jewish state. Let's take, for example, the grandson of Esau, his Amalek, and he was the father of the Amalekites. You might say, okay, who were they? 
Well, you can look at some of these verses a little bit later, but in a sense, the Amalekites are the first terrorist group we run into in the book of Genesis. Remember when the children of Israel were wandering and the Amalekites begin to attack them from the rear and they engage in sort of guerrilla warfare? And then finally there is a battle. Remember the battle? And when the battle takes place, Moses' hand is raised. And when Moses' hand is raised, what happens? Well, Israelites prevail. But, you know, if I hold his hand up long enough, I've got to put it down because I can't hold it up. And when his hand goes down, what happens? Malachites begin to prevail. And so we have this battle that takes place. Well, finally, there comes a time in which God tells Saul through Samuel, it's time to take them out. These evil people are destroying you. And so he tells him to go out and to kill all the Amalekites. Does Saul do that? Now he leaves a few around, doesn't he? I put up Agag as one of them there. And so even though Saul can't kill him, Samuel gets out a sword and takes care of the rest. Well, then you go down to another descendant, and his name is Haman. Remember the story of Haman and Esther? This is the same descendants of Esau. Remember the story of Esther and trying to, again, destroy the Jews. And we have story after story that we can follow of Esau's descendants. Some people say, well, you know, if we would just give land to the Palestinian Authority, just have a two-state solution, we'll have peace. Have we had peace in the past? Will we not? In the future? No, of course not. The history, I think, reminds us a great deal of that. But I thought I'd move on a little bit more because some of us need to know a little bit more about the history of Esau and the Edomites. For example, in Genesis 36, it says, So Esau dwelt in the Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. And so it does show that as we begin to look through the history that Esau did live by the sword, just as Isaac said that he would. He moved from Hebron to Seir, which was later called Petra. And I thought I'd spend a little bit of time explaining Petra because some people say, I've never really thought about Mount Seir, but maybe you have heard about Petra. For you young kids in the audience, do you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Come on, somebody smile here. I see some. Okay. Where did that last scene take place? In what today is called Petra. That region was known as Seir. Petra comes from the Greek word, which really from the Arabic word for batra, which means to cut. And so if you have seen Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, or you've ever been to Jordan, or maybe you've seen pictures, you see this incredible edifice here, and this city was actually cut into the stone itself. Here's a picture or two. If you remember Indiana Jones, he rides into it, and then eventually the last scene, they ride out of that. A particular one and it was a incredible place to protect those that live there the Edomites later the Idumeans which we'll talk about in just a minute because if indeed an invading army was coming through they have to come through this very small passage they could put all sorts of archeries up there and begin to shoot down at them and so it was very easy to protect them from outside invaders if you're looking for the location of it, it is in today what we would call Jordan, but you can see that it is south of the Dead Sea there, and that gives you a little bit of an idea where it was located during the time in which you have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And so the Nabataeans were the ones that actually occupied Petra, and as I pointed out, they were able to actually survive two different attacks from the Greeks. 
Later they were attacked and conquered by the Romans and dispersed. And so I think a lot of people have said that Petra became a deserted place and inhabited only by owls, crows, and wild animals, fulfilling one of those prophecies we could look at in Isaiah 34. But then prior to the New Testament times, the Edomites were still very subversive to Israel. And Idumea is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Edom. So the Idumeans were the, actually the ones that were conquered by the Jews and forced to be circumcised. And so as a result, now they were under some kind of Jewish rule, but they weren't necessarily always obedient to Jewish ideas. And probably the most prominent Idumean family was that of Herod the Great. And so once again, we see how the Herods fought against the Jews. First of all, Herod the Great, what an awful individual, installed as a king by the Romans, very cruel man, later he ordered the death of his wives and his children, and then he was probably best known for ordering the death of all the children under the age of two in what particular city? Bethlehem, okay? Then you have Herod Antipas. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. He also was the one that ruled in the trial against Jesus. And so you can see, even as we come to the New Testament times now, to the time of Christ, you can see once again this constant battle that plays out. Well, where are the descendants of Esau today? I pulled this headline from the Jerusalem Post. As for the Palestinians, it said, leading Orthodox Jewish Bible scholars believe they are the descendants of Amalek, the grandson of Esau, Genesis 36, verse 12. That's in the headlines. Isn't that amazing? First of all, the headlines are a little longer than ours, but I thought it was intriguing just the rest that they were still recognizing this ongoing battle against the Jews and against the nation of Israel. And of course, if that is true, then it would certainly mean that the Palestinians are the descendants of the house of Esau. And so that family feud in Genesis, which went all the way through the Old Testament, even to the time of Christ, continues to today. It really sets up this coming conflict that I think is going to take place. Jacob and Esau both became two nations. The descendants of Esau fought against Israel throughout the Old Testament. We've already talked about Amalek and Agag and Haman. The descendants of Esau opposed Christ in the New Testament, Herod the Great, and they're still in the world today. Pretty amazing. Kind of helps us understand these conflicts have existed for quite some time and will continue to exist. But there's a coming war that we're going to hear about after we take our break, and it's one that we need to pay attention to. But just before we do, let me mention some books that might help you understand that. I've gone through this fairly quickly. I pulled out a few of the slides that we could have gone into more detail, but I wanted you to understand that when we talk about the Middle East, we're in the midst of what could be prophetic history. We're certainly in the midst of incredible history. And so a couple of books that I would recommend, these are three authors that I've interviewed on the radio and every one of them does such an outstanding job. Some people say, can you pick one book? Yeah, I'll pick three. But first of all, you're going to hear from Dr. Mark Hitchcock in just a minute. And if you're going to pick one of three books, that book's right outside. So you can buy that one pretty easily. But for those of you that want to order the others or get them on your Kindle or your Nook or something like that, I would also recommend a couple others. In addition to Middle East burning, if you want to understand a little bit more about Ezekiel and some of the aspects of what is unfolding right now in the Middle East, certainly the book by Ron Rhodes. 
Ron Rhodes was here uh, three years ago at this conference, and he is a good friend and has been on the program with us many times. And then I would be remiss if I did not mention at least one Joel Rosenberg book, and that book, Epicenter, Why the Current Rumblings in the Middle East Will Change Your Future. And so those are some books I might recommend that uh, would be helpful to you in trying to understand our current situation in the Middle East, but also to understand the prophetic significance in the future. Whether the Lord returns before the end of this conference or in the next hour, and after what you've heard, aren't you ready for him to return? Or whether he doesn't return for hundreds or thousands of years, we need to be thinking about what has happened in the Middle East. But I do believe that one very important issue is, do you believe that the nation of Israel has a right to exist? Do you believe that the conflict in the Middle East right now needs to be addressed appropriately? Do you believe that we face a threat from radical Islam? And those are questions that we can certainly talk about. These are some books I think would be helpful to you in terms of having a good understanding about how to think about these issues from a biblical point of view. This concludes Kirby Anderson's study on the current Middle East crisis. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this study and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Also, the entire series from the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference featuring Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Kirby Anderson, and other fine teachers is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the teachings of Pat's guests, like Kirby Anderson, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.